how to instill spiritual and moral values in uh, children living in a secular society. And we first went to the Bible and in order to show that it could be done and noted that Moses was brought up in pagan Egypt with no contact except with his immediate family, specifically the indication is just his mother, and yet she was able to so affect him and his personality and his faith in God that at 40 years of age he made the decision to take the stand with a bunch of slaves and abandon all the position and wealth and, and everything he could have had in Egypt. And his entire connection was with God was with his mother. And on the other hand, he had all that opulence around him and made the decision to turn his back on that. And of course, the Hebrew writer would let us know that it was because of his faith in God. Uh, when God introduced himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, that could have had no meaning to Moses except he already knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he knew it from the past teaching of his mother. And then we looked at some other examples. Uh, uh, Timothy, uh, brought up with a Greek father, uh, had not been circumcised, brought up in a pagan Roman world dominated by the totalitarian government of Rome, and his entire connection with morality and spirituality was his mother and his grandmother. And yet uh, that mother and grandmother living in that environment was able to steal the kind of values that, that made him right for Paul. And keep in mind that Paul converted Timothy, but Timothy was already a certain type of character and a certain type of personality, and that's why Paul chose to train him and use him in the way that he did. I would give other examples of, of individuals with that background. I mean, in fact, we, we used, I think, the entire Jewish nation uh, there were many devout Jews, we read in Acts 2, and yet the Jews were living in pagan Rome, and despite everything everybody says, uh, if, if only half of what I read about Rome is true, as bad as we are, we're still not as bad as Rome was at the time that, I mean, we are a democracy, we do have Christians within our legislature and our, our Congress. Uh, we do have people in high positions who have strong moral values as a Christian. Uh, this simply was not the case in, in pagan Rome. Uh, and so with all of that, there were Jews and they, that had the, the synagogue and their own families and, and managed to grow up and be very moral, very spiritual, and very devout individuals. And so uh, all of these, Daniel, another good example we had on there, uh, living at a time when Judah was so corrupt that God had permitted to be uh, conquered by Babylon. Uh, he goes into Babylonian captivity, minimum contact with the people of God, and yet you simply will not find a more moral or more spiritual individual. And we do all of that simply to say that it is maybe a cop-out before God uh, for us to, to live in a loose way and then use our surroundings as an excuse for it. And then we pointed out last week where it's important to our children. Children tend to live up to their expectations. Uh, and I believe, and we'll discuss this further tonight, if children are brought up in an atmosphere where, for example, boys are told that uh, they will sow their wild oats and children will be children and things like that, 
uh, they'll live up to those expectations. Uh, but if they are taught that, uh, that there, is, there is no more reason for a boy to be immoral than there is a girl. There's no more reason for a boy to sow his wild oats uh, than a girl. And that it's, it's possible for a boy to live and go through school and not get in fights and, and use the bad language and things like that. Uh, and I say that as one that that was not my background. I did use the language and I was brought up in, in, in the other way. But uh, there are those individuals even today who are brought up in Christian homes uh, in a bad situation and who come through all of that and who use the correct language and who are very spiritual individuals. In fact, uh, uh, I know that, uh, uh, that you've, uh, I think Alba and I would maybe both agree on this point, when I look at, uh, I know where I came from. And when I look at my children, like my boys and girls and all, I see a higher level of spirituality than existed in me at their age. And, uh, and I think that, uh, I think Al would feel, maybe would feel the same way when he looks at Mark and, and his children. Now, we come from a, I, in other words, I didn't have all the ingredients of a Christian home. I had a mother that was a believer, uh, a dad that was an unbeliever, and then no dad for a while, and then a stepfather that was not a Christian. And the environment I lived in was not Christian. And so that uh, there were many advantages mine have had that, that I didn't have. But I really believe that it is possible, and I think that parents ought to be given confidence today that they can be successful. Uh, and I think the, the young parents like uh, Mark and Nancy and uh, Mark and uh, Missy and, and others uh, ought to feel confident that no matter what, that they can raise children that are spiritual and are moral, and the same with other young couples. Uh, Next week, we'll finish up on it, and uh, this week we're going to look at the outline here and take God as our example, God as our Father, and look at the way He deals with us. Keep in mind, God is in the process of raising us up to be spiritual and moral in an environment that belongs to the devil. Uh, I mean, the devil's referred to as the prince of this world. Uh, he's the one that's in control here. He's the one that could offer Jesus all the things of, of, of this life. And so that uh, this world is, is one where we know the situation with Job and Satan. And yet God feels confident that the moral values and spiritual values are so true that he can allow us to exist here and even have a certain amount of distance and still turn out spiritual and, and moral individuals. And so I think if we, we look at how God goes about his task, and then we can take that and apply it to the situation we have as parents. Now, next week, that uh, I just, uh, I'm in the process of finishing up these two books here, uh, Help, I'm a Parent by Dr. Bruce Naramore. He's a Christian psychologist. And this one here, uh, kids who have too much, dealing with the affluency in our society and the negative effect uh, that it really has on, on spiritual growth. And so I'll have these finished by next week, and we'll give a synopsis of them and discuss the principles from it. Also, another book I'm reading, and I'll have it finished also, Counseling and Homosexuality. Uh, there's so much being said on homosexuality, and yet it is the consensus uh, of the best doctors and counselors in that field 
that the kind of environment and the kind of relationship that a young man has with his father has a whole lot to do with, with what happens here. And then another book that uh, I read this some years back and I've just simply gone back and reviewed it, uh, Francis Schaeffer, How Should We Then Live? He calls it The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. Uh, we're reading now about living in the post-Christian uh, era, and that's what all of the various books I read about evangelizing the secular world say. Uh, Schaefer wrote this in the 70s, and we are now fulfilling prophecy that he uttered. Uh, his, uh, his statement then was that that was going to be the last Christian generation, and then he forecast what was going to happen as a result of what was going on, and he hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's amazing. The book was published in the 70s. Books are always about five years behind time so far as the total information they operate with. And just based on what he observed then, he's been an accurate prophet of what we have right now. Okay, uh, now as we get into this, all of us are parents. And I think it's a type of thing where everybody can share. And so that as we go through here, any uh, thing that you have tried and it worked in the process of, of making your children moral or spiritual or getting these values in young people, uh, then we're open for a suggestion on anything you've tried and it's failed and just flat did not work. Uh, I know Barbara and I, we, we know several things in our situation. We, uh, we started out a little more firm with our first ones. And as the latter two come on, we were not quite as strict as we were with the first four. And so far, things are going fine to the best of our knowledge on everything, but we can tell a difference. And we already, we've discussed this among ourselves, and, and if we had it to do over again, we would be just as firm with the last two as we were with the first four. And uh, there were just things that we, that uh, we get into this business of all oh, daddy and uh, mom, you know, and, and, and the little bit of argument, and then we would cave in a few times. When we didn't cave in, we, on the others, we held our guns, and we even have a situation now where uh, my older children will say, Dad, you never would have allowed that with me. You know, you would never would have tolerated that in my situation and in my own home. Uh, that uh, I'm the oldest of five, and my younger brother has been a real problem, and he's had a lot of problems. And uh, mom will often say, well, I just don't understand it. Uh, you, you know, you, you were brought up, this, I brought you all up the same way. And I tell her, I say, mom, you didn't. You know, the older ones, we, we had stricter discipline, and there was more expected of us, and by the time the younger ones came along, uh, my parents were financially better off because the first three of us were out on our own. And so they just had the two, and, and, and we were in a situation where we had more money and more to give and things like that. And the interesting thing is that in our family, the first three of us that started off with the projects and low-income housing and the very worst, probably turned out to be the more moral and the more spiritual. And then I had a, a sister that come on and uh, that 
very, some good qualities there, but also some very negative things when it came when it comes to things like worldliness. But uh, they had more income, and and there was more that could be given. And then there was a lack of discipline with the last one that that actually showed in many ways. So I think don't you think that's maybe a combination of just getting worn down? I was thinking about that, Barbara. You get yeah. tired, and I, I was thinking about David. Uh, I think the older children say, you know, that we weren't as strict with David. Of course, I don't think we felt that at the time. Uh, Alva felt all along that we were not able to give David the attention that he needed as a as a youngster. Because there was a gap. Todd and Mark and Melissa were real close together, and they were all real, always real active and in everything. And David always went with us, and we took him with us, uh, and we encouraged him to be in things and everything he would participate in. We would attend, you know, during the day or the evening or whatever. But it seemed like that he was more, I guess, drug along or something to be. And that because of the age difference, their things took priority, kind of, I guess, over his. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Yeah, I know Barbara said the same thing in some areas, Brenda, with the, when Sandy came, the first one, by the time she was just a little bitty taught, she could just come right back with all kinds of Bible facts and everything like that. And she just drilled her and went over things with her. And when the first one started college, we were right there at the orientation and we went to the room they was going to stay and we met their friends and and we would visit uh, the student center on a regular basis and go down and then after we had done that uh, you know through the first three and four I guess we just we felt pretty confident because we'd been successful there and we, we kind of drew back a little bit and we didn't make as many visits and everything and and then as a result there were some times when we thought we'd made a mistake that uh that we wished we had held the reins a, a little closer you know but it's there's uh, just so much time though yeah. and, and i know you know you you think you're busy when they're little but it, it just gets worse <laughs> it does it's not gonna get better but even, even the age of hours i I, we're not near as strict with Sarah as we were with Luke, and I can already tell that, and I can tell a difference in her, too, as a result of it. Yeah. And I think we've got to buckle down on some areas with her before it gets away from it. There's a tendency with the older of expecting more. Yeah. And the other one's always little. I know that now I was the oldest one, and I told her I could never remember thinking of myself as little or young. I, I, I know what's, I, can, I never thought that way because immediately, uh, when I was two, I had somebody under me, and before I had two under me. And I just never thought that way. And like with our children, Sandy, we've just always thought of her as mature. Mm -hmm. I mean, at, at, at a young age, very mature. Annette's always been a baby. And it really would have been better to have, um, you know, had, in other words, I think Sandy is the more, was the more mature for her age than, than what Annette. Annette's a sweet girl. Everything's gone. I don't want to leave the impression there on that. But I'm saying that there are some qualities of maturity mm -hmm. that the olders ha older have that I, I don't see in the younger. They're behind them when I it comes it's, to maturity. I think it's, it's a reflection, too, of just living in our society and the whole society being more immoral and all. And I, th I think it makes our task harder 
because just like when when the older ones came up, may, maybe even concerning dress, you just said to them, well, you don't dress that way. And, and we just thought, you know, well, you know, you just, you know, it's just bad people that dress there that way. There wasn't much pressure on right. them to want to do that. Right, and, and they didn't argue with that. They, they, you know, they didn't argue with that because they could see the type of people that dress that way or whatever. But now, other people that go to church or dress, you know, maybe uh, a lot with shorter dresses than you would have ever, like one of your children, worn when, you know, in younger years. And they say, well, Mom, my goodness, look at so-and-so. And, you know, you think, well, theirs is even shorter. And if you don't watch yourself, I think you really let that, you know, influence you. You kind of compare them with with our society and our yeah. society I think is on different a lot of than things, what it was 10 years ago. The child is being ago. honest. They're looking at what they want to do and, and, and they're comparing it to others, whatever it may be, whether it's the type thing they want to go to. And they're thinking, well, sure, I'm going to this too, but I'm going to be home at 11 or, or I'm only going to do such and such. And they look pretty good in their eyes, whereas we're looking at it in comparison to some years back. Look at the chart here, and we'll get started on it on the, some of the differences. Um, when, when in my generation, going back, and we had programs like Dragnet. Does anybody other than Albert and I remember Dragnet? No. Okay. Well, you know, it was it was true police stories, right? Yeah. Of LA and Jack Webb. But somehow they managed to convey what was involved in going after the criminal and the whole process in a truthful and honest way without using foul language and, and without having explicit sex scenes and things of this nature. We all knew that crooks and people cursed and that even police cursed. We knew that. And we knew that the sexual thing happened, but we seemingly had the ability to figure all that out without it being... Uh, portrayed. In other words, when we watched Dragnet, if you wasn't interested in the mystery and the true story, you wasn't interested in it. Um, if you don't even like mysteries, you could get interested from a wrong sense in NYPD. That, uh, again, a totally different approach. And I just give that as a, a, a sample, a totally different approach that it could be NYPD could not have been on in, on the movies back then, much less in, in, in TV. We had programs like Father Knows Best, Ozzie and Harriet. Now we've got Roseanne and, and the language and things like that. Uh, we way, had, did I say this? As far as our last two girls, that's exactly the type, type thing that I'm talking about. I'm not, I, I don't know, I'm like you, I sort of feel like we give those two last girls a, a bad... <laughs> well, I don't want to leave a wrong no, impression. I'm they're good girls. The they're very good girls, right. But I'm saying, for instance, like, they could watch and enjoy Roseanne. That just tears Paula that they could watch and be entertained by Roseanne. They don't think anything about it. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Well, they don't. And I says, don't let filthy mouth turn you off. And I says, uh, there's nothing righteous about her or anything, you know. And I says, now, I'll admit she can be funny. But ever said everything about her life, her personal life and everything is, is, is wrong from a Christian standpoint. Uh, the talk shows were, there was guys like Steve Allen, Dick Cabot, um, intellectual, concerned with politics and things like that. Uh, really, Johnny Carson was very mild. 
uh, that uh, he was, uh, you know, there were the things, he was a person of the world. But in comparison to some today, he would be really rather reserved. Um, and the talk shows today, whether it's Donahue or whatever, they, it's, um, we know if you see somebody, they're either homosexual or they're sleeping with their mother or their father or, or they're, they're living with eight different people or, or whatever. We know it's something like that if they got it on there. And, but what happens is the kids see that. And they begin to think of that as this is a normal part of life, when the reality is it, it really is not. Those people say they're reflecting life the way it is. But in reality, and the media's been selling that line, but in reality it's not. Uh, in our society, for example, we hear that the divorce rate is better than 50%. And that's true in the sense that more than 50% of marriage ceremonies that take place will result in a divorce. But it's also true that two out of every three people that marry will be unto death to you part. In other words, the other third get divorced enough times to, to push that up. But two out of every three people that get married, it's until death do you part. And there are still a lot of relations, like they'll say that 50% uh, or so of men cheat on their wife at one time or another. But that still says that 50% go through their life and don't cheat on their wife. And then, it, and then whatever the percentage might be with ladies. But I'm saying the news media and the, their entertainment leaves the impression to our young that this is just natural, everybody's this way, when really it's not. Uh, the school, I read this and couldn't find the list. Uh, the big problem in school used to be chewing gum, shooting paper wads, uh, occasionally a nasty statement or a fight or something. That was the problem. Now... We've got policemen in schools. You know, they're they're carrying guns, they're carrying knives. Uh, we read of sexual acts taking place in the room. We read of people getting beat up and killed, and and, and teachers that are scared. Uh, and teachers in your city systems will tell you the hardest thing they do is to maintain discipline. The easiest part of teaching is teaching. The most difficult part is is maintaining discipline. Yesterday I heard where they had taken a loaded gun away from a kindergarten mm -hmm. child. I don't know whether it's in Knoxville or where it was. I can't, can't remember right now. They I had a first grader. Against the parents. I had a first grader bring an air gun that was loaded one time to school, an air pistol. And we took it away and called. He was living with his grandmother, the divorced family. We took it away and called them to come and pick, pick them up. We regularly took knives away from children. And then we just had a policy, I'd take that away, and then the parent would have to pick it up. And this was where we was at was good in comparison to the city. Uh, the family, uh, it used to be divorce, broken families were the exception to the rule. Uh, I remember, I come from a broken family, and I remember feeling like that there weren't many like me. You know, we was the, the, my mom used to feel awkward going to church because you know, when people would ask questions, it was embarrassing to her that she had been through a divorce. And she used to didn't like it. Now she could have felt perfectly comfortable, you know. It's, it's just very common. Uh, textbooks, uh, the, the readers used to have stories that promoted uh, moral values. Uh, that promoted being, for example, uh, working to get what you want. Uh, now, the, sto the stories promote our welfare state. 
they promote the government situation. They promote amoral things. Uh, there's something we have a situation where kids are presented with choices, and then they work through the choices, and and we tell them the alternatives, and they make the choice. But there's no saying that this is right and that's wrong. That's out, uh, as opposed to a generation that had definite rights and wrongs. And then again, the moral values of society, uh, we couldn't even imagine homosexuals parading in the streets and, and making love open and publicly and all in, in the way that it's going on now and, and, and having uh, gay pride and, and all of this to show you again how far we've come. The first time somebody told me they were gay, they were, uh, I was 18 at the time, and he come up and talked with me, and he asked me if I was gay. I didn't know what he was talking about. And I said, what do you mean? He said, do you like boys? And I realized, well, I honestly didn't know what he was talking about. And, and I was 18 at the time. But now, of course, it's uh, we, we, we the word Kids has changed. Kids know it, don't they? Oh, every, well, everybody knows everything. The point is, what I'm saying is, although we can instill moral and spiritual values, I don't want to leave the impression that it's as easy as it was a generation ago. I, I honestly believe it was more. It's more difficult today, and I think the young young people that are bringing children up today have a much more difficult task ahead of them than what we had a generation ago and in all of these areas and more that could be mentioned. Okay, uh, when we said that, uh, what I tried to do is take what psychologists say is needed in order to have a home that, that is best for the child and show that God sets the example and then asks us of it in the scriptures. Uh, Every psychology book you'll read dealing with child psychology will tell you first and foremost when the child comes on the scene, he needs to, or she, needs to be able to feel security. And one of the most important things that parents do for their children is provide an atmosphere where that child feels secure and protected. And it's one of the most important things in the psychological development in so many ways of that child's, whether they're going to have phobias and fears or be paranoid, uh, whether they'll be confident or backward, and a lot of these things are determined just by this supply and security. Well, look um, at the... Okay. Um, since you were talking about that, Christopher, he, I don't know, in the last few months, he just... He he seems he seems insecure, and I mean he'll every little thing. I mean he'll run and want us to hold him and say, "I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared." And you know, I just it just it almost seems to the point of uh, uh, excess. What do you think, Mark? That maybe because he's got a younger one. Under I don't know. That's why yeah, I was that that is a way that, in other I words, he's struggling for attention. Extremely careful when you get a new one, and to make sure that that you know you can get so busy with the little one and diapering and all that they can feel a little bit neglected or yeah. whatever. I, I don't and I'm sure that that you know that's. I'm sure that I didn't do that to perfection either. Uh, I think the end of cartoons. Yeah. Mm -mm, they've been watching TV. But they, I know they'll say that any time you have the second and then the third child, 
that's born in family, make sure that that other one still, you know, gets the affection and is held and everything like that. Because the tendency is to pick up the younger one, you know, much more often. Uh, one thing that that I, I did, and I can't remember Barbara and I did this together. But I remember doing it when we had we had six kids, and you know how close they were, and we was real concerned. And to show you how they wanted, uh, I don't remember the ages, but we had all six of them. In the evening, uh, get in the rocking chair, and I rocked every one of them. I think it was about 10 minutes. And I had to, they waited on their time. But I started, and every one of them got Not rocked. Not exactly in line, but no. they knew it was their But time, every their one time. of them was going to get rocked and held. And, uh, and we, we worked that out, and they, they expected that. But I mean, even the older one, wanted they won't come out and say it but they want it and so i made sure that they was held and rocked and then another thing we did uh whenever we went anywhere see we had such a big family it'd be different than a lot and so what we would do we would take one with us and the uh, they all just got their turn in other words we we every one of them got a turn going with us and so that one child we was concerned about our children getting lost in the crowd and so when we went out, we'd go out to eat. If we went out and we'd take one of the children. And for that one time, they got to feel special. And like they was a child or if we went somewhere. And so we alternated around. And then like on their birthday, we again would take one of them someplace just with us. And so that they could feel special for that period of time. But uh, anything that's involved uh, in that security, and keep in mind God's relationship to us, there's billions of us, but you really want to feel that you're special to God. That, uh, and sometimes it boggles your mind, but you really want to think and feel that, I mean, it's not very comforting to think that God's just looking at five billion as a group and you're insignificant. That even though there's five billion plus, you want to feel that God is in tune to your thinking, that he listens to your prayers, and he's there anytime you need him. Oh, kids will often say, do you love me the best? Or, yeah. you know, do you love so-and-so the best? And I think it's good to, to point out to them that I can love somebody else. I can love you equally. And it doesn't take anything away from your love, just like you love your mommy and daddy. Did the reason, do you love me? Do you love daddy? Well, do you love me any less or any, you know, I think that's a good example. They can see that because they love daddy, it doesn't take away from their love from me. I think that's... A good example for that sometime. And at Psalms 23, look at what, think of the security. Uh, Psalms 23 has been one of the most loved Psalms all through the years. In fact, my grandfather that uh, died at 101, that was his favorite passage in the Bible. And when he thought he was going, two times I was with him when he thought he was dying right then. And of course, he could quote it verbatim for years. And that's what he did. He says, Paul, I think it's time. And he'd start quoting it. You know, and he'd quote Psalms 23. That's what he, that's what was on his mind. But the comfort there, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, he leadeth me. And then everything there is that, that David looked at this and he, he reasoned in his own mind and the Holy Spirit knew he hit on a truth. And that was that if he felt that for his sheep, surely his creator felt at least that with him. And so he derived his comfort in thinking that God was his great shepherd. 
Well, I think in the same way, we want to provide an atmosphere where the child feels that way towards us. In other words, we're, whatever we say is going to be what's best for him. That we're not, uh, to give you an example where this could be destroyed, uh, the worst thing a parent can do maybe is to fly into a rage mad at a child and tear into him or something like that. Uh, also, what I believe personally, and I think could be backed up with the studies, I believe that the mother and father do not have a good relationship and they're at one another's throats and there's a possibility of separation there. I don't believe there's any way possible that a child can feel security in that kind of environment. So the, the, in fact, another article I read said that to parents, the best thing that you do for your child is maintain a good relationship. That that was just extremely comforting to a child to know that mom and dad love one another and that they had a real good relationship. And it was extremely non-comforting to them to, to feel that there was friction between the parents. And that all of this, and of course, again, put yourself, I know this is a ridiculous uh, hypothetical situation. You've got God in Christ having it out and at one another's throats. You see, well, that's an absurdity. That would destroy all our comfort. You know, that, and that's, well, in the same way, I don't know that God and Christ mean any more to us as adults than mother and father do to a child. And, and I think you would have just about that same thing in the mind of the child if you've got mother and father uh, at one another's throats. And then also the articles would say, sometimes parents get so involved in supplying the needs of the children that they neglect the relationship one with the other. I know Barbara and I have talked about this several times. There's been times when, when we thought we were neglecting our relationship, and really the studies would say that take time for your relationship, that, that it's good for you to have a good relationship. And if it means getting away from the children for a period of time or whatever, but one of the best things you do for your children is, is to take time for your own relationship and to work on your own relationship and the mother that neglects the husband because she's devoting all her attention to the children is making a mistake. And I think the, the other way, too, that they, they have to work on their relationship in order to supply the security that's necessary for the child. The other one there, God loves us first. 1 John 4.19 says we love God because he first loved us. It, it's always the mature person that starts the loving process. Uh, we love our enemies. Our enemies don't love us. Uh, people that are not Christian, we love them. It's always the mature person. So in a family situation, it should not, the teenager should not be expected to set the example here, or the child. Uh, the parent ought to be like the Father in heaven, and we ought to love the child first, and then uh, any parent that wants to be loved by the child, it's very simple. He says there, we love God because he first loved us. And the love that we have for God is motivated by what his love that's shown towards us. And I believe in the same way that you don't have to ask your children to love you or wonder about it. If you love them and do the things that love demands, uh, they're going to love back in return.
And then the next one, God loves unconditionally. Uh, in Romans 5, it says, while we were God's enemies. He says, somebody might die for a friend or peradventure for a good man. But while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And I think there's, uh, there's nothing more important than unconditional love also when it comes to the security factor. In other words, we want our children to be good. We want our children to know that even if they go to school and set the place on fire, we still love them. And, and, we, and we, we want our daughters and our sons both to be moral, but if our daughter does get pregnant, we, we don't want her out here going to some, we, we want her to know that she's still loved, uh, even if she's pregnant and made a mistake, that she's still loved, that the love is unconditional, and we're willing to work with her through that problem. And if the boy gets somebody pregnant, the same thing. What he did was wrong, but he still needs to know his love. If he makes an F on his report card, he still needs to know that he's loved. Uh, and if he, if he goes to bat at Little League and strikes out 10 times, he still needs to know that, that, that you still think highly of him, that you're bragging on him and thinking highly of him is not determined by him going three for four. He can go over four, and, and you feel the same. And so God loves us unconditionally, whether we're good or bad. Uh, he just absolutely continues to love us. And then Luke 15, the example of the prodigal son, that he took it and he blew it. And he, he went and spent it all and went with the harlots and wound up the pig pen, came to himself, and the father went out and met him with open arms. And we know that's God and the father. And so I'm saying the child ought to know that no matter what mistake he ever makes, that he's always going to be loved. And I, by the way, another thing, uh, when you talk about uh, putting honesty within a child, that that's one of the spiritual qualities. One of the best ways to create dishonesty is to not have unconditional love. Uh, because it, the child will lie to protect himself in your eyes. And if he realizes that you can handle whatever he's done wrong, that he's much more apt to be honest. Uh, one of the things I used to do in school system as principal is uh, a lot of times I could take a child that I knew was going to lie about something. But if I'd let him know in advance that the punishment wasn't going to be murderous and that if he was honest with me, it was going to go a lot better, you know, that we would handle it in a different way if he was honest, uh, that a lot of times a child will change right in midstream and, and go ahead and be honest. What they're scared of is the, is the consequences many times. But unconditional love is a good way to, to motivate honesty. Another thing, a child doesn't have to lie to impress you. In other words, he can come home and say, yes, I made a D or an F or whatever, if he knows that he's loved just as much, no matter what. Um, God gives guidance through his law. I believe parents make a tremendous mistake if they don't lay down laws for their children. Uh, children are immature, they have an experienced life, and they don't know what right and wrong is. And parents need to lay down the laws, but God also lays down the laws from within a framework that his law is inherently right. In other words, it's not just a matter of do this, but it's do it because it works. It's right. Uh, if you do this, for example, you won't have the diseases of the Egyptians. If you do this, you'll be prospered, etc. And I think our laws ought to be not do this because I say so, 
but do it because it's right and it works and, and you're going to save yourself a, a lot of problem in, in, in doing it that way and then uh, God disciplines us Hebrews 12, and he also makes a statement that discipline is not pleasant and for the moment but it's good in the long run and we need to thank anybody that doesn't think that God believes in strong discipline all they have to do is look at their body and see how we're deteriorating and dying. Death is a penalty of sin. Uh, and and all, look at all the plagues and the diseases and the ailments that have come on the human family that he brought into his experience because of sin. And so God allows us to suffer the consequence of our sin. Have you ever known a parent that uh, was always bailing their children out when they made a mistake? They get arrested and they, and the parents have a little pull, so they go down and, and get the child out and nothing much happens to him when, when he was arrested or got his speeding ticket or, or whatever it was. Uh, or they go to the school and because they carry a little weight with the teacher or the principal or the school board member, uh, they get an exception made for their child. Uh, they hurt the child. I think the, the, the best thing for that child is to allow them to suffer the consequences of bad behavior. And that's the way that we're disciplined and learn that that behavior doesn't work. And then number six, that may be number one of all of it. God models his rules in Christ. Uh, you cannot teach honesty and be dishonest before your child. You can't be figuring out how to beat the IRS or to be dishonest in business. I don't believe you can be answering the phone and saying so-and-so's not in when they are in. Uh, and uh, any of those type things. That uh, that's, that's all. Uh, children have a hard time figuring out what is a white lie, what is uh, just a lie. And so that uh, we need to model it we, we model temperament. Uh, you can't correct your child for getting mad and hitting somebody if you fly off the handle. And, and by the way, we can make all kinds of mistakes, I believe, as long as we apologize and admit it. And, and I think we should to our children. If, if, we, if, our, if we've been too stern or made a mistake or if you said something to your wife or your husband you shouldn't have said, come back later and apologize to the child and, and let them know then that you acknowledge what is right but whatever it is you want of the child simply has to be modeled uh, in your own behavior. Number seven, God complements spiritual and moral qualities. All right, now think about that. And remember 1 Samuel where he told uh, uh, Samuel, I don't look on man as, as man does, I look on the heart. Think about the way we are around children. What do we compliment? I mean, in society as a whole, how do we compliment them? Pretty, Pretty, handsome. Man, you're going to be a big boy. You know, you're almost, I can tell you're going to be six foot. Look at those eyes. By the way, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I'm saying we do that constant. Pretty dress, nice suit. Uh, you really look sharp. Then performance. Uh, we really praise our athletes. We put their pictures on the bulletin board. Uh, we write them up in the paper. Parents are proud as peacocks if their, their child is popular and everything like that on that. So we really play athletics. And grades. 
you know, we all like, to, like it when our children make A's. We, we used to give out bumper stickers at school. My child made straight A's this quarter. I didn't like them personally because there are some children that could try as hard as they could and could not make straight A's. Uh, and, and so I, I think that I think a child ought to shoot for it and feel good about it. But I don't believe that that another child should feel any less if they tried it and couldn't make it. So we do all of that. And I, by the way, I'm not criticizing all of that. I tell my little girl they look cute or anything like that or, or something because I know it's important to them. But if you want to instill moral values and spiritual compliments work. What happens when you compliment this little girl and tell her that dress is pretty and she looks cute in it? She wants to wear it again. And what happens when uh, a lady gets her hair cut a certain way and you say, I like the way you got your hair cut? She'll probably keep it that way for a while. Uh, and the same with any other thing. We, we respond to compliments, even as adults. We, we respond to compliments. Children respond to compliments. And so when children are courteous, complimented. When they tell you the truth, even though they did something bad, compliment them for telling you the truth. And tell them that was just as important as any right thing they could have done. And so even though you did this and it's wrong, really compliment them for telling the truth. I, I'm really happy you're, you're honest and all. And any quality that you want in your child of a spiritual nature, compliment uh, For example, criticize selfishness. Compliment selflessness. Uh, compliment if a, if a child is a team player.